This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by me. Hi, I'm Tim, the creator and facilitator of the New Evangelicals and host of the New Evangelicals podcast. Original, I know. We are a Jesus-centered and inclusive community that holds space for the folks marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and we help people like you leave that cold, dark, and damp basement of evangelical fundamentalism behind to explore the rooms of the Christian tradition together. You can check out our podcast to hear from all kinds of amazing guests who are way smarter than me and even a few episodes where I get to rant to our podcast producer about how dangerous Christian nationalism is. Ah, good times. Check us out anywhere you get your podcasts or slide into our DMs on Instagram at The New Evangelicals. Thanks! Shopping these days can be underwhelming, but at QVC, we believe those who love to shop deserve a living, breathing way to shop, where product descriptions are alive with demos by creators, chats with inventors, and hosts who know the most. From self-care and kitchenware to fashion trends and forever faves, at QVC, we bring life to products and products to life. Shop qvc.com podcast and use code QVC15podcast for $15 off $30 for new customers. This is shopping brought to life. Hi friends, I'm Tim Whitaker and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward. What's up, friends? Welcome back to the New Evangelicals Podcast. So good to be with you. This is a very special and great episode. I talked to Dr. Matthew Taylor. He is a Protestant scholar where he specializes in Muslim Christian dialogue, evangelical and Pentecostal movements, and religious politics in the U.S. and American Islam. So he is Wow, he's someone who just has a very wide skill set. And I brought him on because I actually discovered him on the Straight White American Jesus podcast where he did a six-part series on the new apostolic reformation and its implications in the U.S. body politic, including how it impacted the January 6th insurrection. So I brought him on to kind of do a high-level overview because, listen, I know a lot of you don't have multiple hours to go through long podcast series, but I will say Listening to his six-part series on Straight White American Jesus' podcast is worth it 100%, but this will be a great high-level overview of this charismatic movement and why it has grown so quick and so fast and also has taken a lot of power. So this is a really great interview. I really hope that you enjoy it. And of course, every time I do this podcast, I'm going to say the same exact thing. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. If you want to support the work that we do, you can like and subscribe. You can give us a a rating on iTunes or leave a comment on YouTube. And we are a nonprofit organization holding space for thousands of people trying to leave the evangelical basement and find better paths forward in the Christian tradition. If you want to donate, that's how this is all made possible. If you want to know why we don't offer any Patreon account or any extra episodes behind paywalls, it's because 300 and I think about 45 people every month donate to make this work possible. And some people just do a one-time donation. So if that's you, if you want to help us hold space for people navigating these really crucial 
uh, moments in their life, you can donate via the link in our uh, in our show notes or link in our bio on Instagram. And any donation made in the U.S. is tax deductible, which is a benefit for you. And again, helps hold space for so many. So thank you to all of our donors. All right, friends, without further ado, here is my interview with Dr. Matthew Taylor. Have a great day. Talk to you later. Right, audience, this is a special one. I mean, I say that often, but I mean it every time, and this is no exception. So I don't know what that makes these episodes. But anyway, besides the point, I have Dr. Matthew Taylor on the podcast. Um, Matt, thank you. I can't express how much it means to me to have you come on the show and talk. I appreciate you making time. Thanks for being here. It's great to be here, Tim. <laughs> awesome. Well, for those of you who don't know, Matt did a really unbelievably well-done series on the Straight White American Jesus podcast talking about, I would argue, one of the elements that has fueled so much of the Christian nationalism that we've seen that many of us might not, might not even be aware of. We're going to dive into that for sure. And I, I asked Matt to come on to kind of give us maybe like almost an intro to that series slash kind of high-level overview. And I hope that at the end of this, you do go to that podcast. Again, it's Straight White American Jesus. To I think it's a six-part series you you did uh, with Brad, just unpacking what we're going to talk about today. So that's very important. All that aside, Matt, thanks for being here. Can you kind of give the audience a little bit about your backstory? I'm kind of curious personally, did you grow up in evangelical spaces? What was your, your, your upbringing like? Yeah, I definitely grew up in evangelical spaces. I was uh, born and raised in Southern California, um, attended Christian school through elementary school, middle school, high school, um, went to the University of California, Irvine, and got involved in InterVarsity Christian Fellowship there, wound up coming on staff with InterVarsity, worked for them for about seven years. And then, um, and I, I, attended just about every kind of evangelical church you can think of. So um, evangelical free, charismatic, non-denominational, vineyard, Pentecostal, uh, Baptist, just about everything. Um, and then over time, I, I actually started working on a degree at Fuller Seminary and decided I really wanted to pursue a PhD and also realized I wasn't really evangelical anymore, theologically, identity-wise. So oozed into mainline Protestantism, which is where I, I still inhabit today. Got a PhD in um, Islam and Christianity and Muslim Christian dialogue. And now I work at an interfaith institute in Baltimore, uh, working on Jewish Christian Muslim relations and building networks and community among the, those traditions and dismantling religious bigotry. Okay, I feel like I have to have you back for that conversation. <laughs> that, that is an amazing can of worms I would love to open and just see what's inside. I have so many questions about that, but that's not what we're here for today. I appreciate you kind of giving us that background. So you, would you, is it safe to say you still identify as a Christian somewhere in the house of Christian thought? Yeah, I, I definitely identify as a Christian. Um, I'm a bit of a Protestant mutt, and I got my PhD at Georgetown and came to a deep appreciation of Catholic theology. So I'm I'm a bit of everything Christian. I'm an ecumenical Christian in my own identity, um, but I, I uh, definitely identify with an evangelical background as something that was really formative for my Christianity. Yeah, you know, I, I really, as I'm kind of coming out of what I call the basement of evangelical fundamentalism, I'm, I'm just realizing how big this house is that I've been a part of but never knew really existed, right? Because you're kind of taught in those spaces, like if you leave the basement, it's just desert 
and like you're pretty much on, on Mars <laughs> up there. And then you leave, and you're like, oh my gosh, like there's so much to explore. So I, I appreciate that because I think a lot of people are kind of in that space of like, yeah, I didn't even know that there were all these different ways of viewing these things that are still faithful somewhere in the Christian space. And I, th- I think that's awesome. So um, I have to ask then, because you, so so the series that you did with, 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 with Brad on the Straight White American Jesus podcast really tackles what's called the NAR, New Apostolic Reformation. Uh, and really, it's a very, it's, it's a very deep dive. I mean, well done, deep dive. What got you interested in even finding out about the NAR? Were, were you a part of those circles without, without knowing it at some point? Like, give me the backstory there. So I, I wouldn't say I was ever part of the NAR circles. Um, Peter Wagner, C. Peter Wagner, who coined the term New Apostolic Reformation, was a Fuller Seminary professor. Um, and he uh, coined the term while he was at Fuller in the 1990s. He left Fuller in 1999, as we talk about in the series, to go and build the NAR. Um, so I came to Fuller in 2004. So we never really overlapped, but I did catch some of the edges of his influence, his ideas, some of the the lingering kind of effect of some of his church growth paradigms and spiritual warfare ideas there. Um, so I, because I grew up in that kind of evangelical soup of Southern California, yeah, where right. you've got a lot of dimensions of charismatic Pentecostal, um, a lot, a lot of stuff going back to the Jesus movement in the ni- late 1960s, early 1970s that really got got this independent charismatic world going. Um, I had a lot of friends and acquaintances who went deep into this stuff, and so throughout the 2020 election, I was just watching as people that w- I would call acquaintances on social media, yeah. but had been childhood friends, um, totally. got more and more radicalized and more and more amped up with their rhetoric around prophecy around Trump. So. January 6th happens, and I wasn't quite shocked. Um, I had just sent off my, my, my the first draft of my manuscript of my book that morning. So I was kind of in like a research, <laughs> kind, of, kind of research valley, kind of waiting, waiting to think about what the next thing was. And so I just started digging and started trying to figure out what, 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 is the, what is this Christianity that we're seeing on display here? Where is this coming from? What is driving the Christianity that we see at the Capitol riot? And that just took me down all kinds of winding back alleys and led me to the New Apostolic Reformation. Yeah, and we're definitely going to dig into to that in, in more detail in a few minutes here. But bef- before we do, I'm, I'm just kind of curious again, you know, because the the, the series um, that that you did is really great. I think as far as like information, hey, here's data. But I'm kind of curious, like you as the human, right? Like like you as Matt personally. In 2016, did did looking back now with what you know, did you see hints of even this kind of more charismatic type of leaning, you know, movement like like, like really shaping up to to throw the weight behind Trump? Or what was it like for you watching this happen as as a Christian? I I confess in 2016 I was mystified by evangelical support for Donald Trump. Yeah. I, I personally, I mean, I, by that point, I had been outside of evangelical circles for um, five or six years. I was still working on my PhD. And so I, I felt fairly detached from kind of the, the evangelical world. My family, friends, many of my friends were still evangelical, but um, my I came out of, in the university, even the fuller space, a more liberal form of evangelicalism on the conservative evangelical spectrum, right? So, right. so it's um, progressive compared with what we think of as the most right-wing parts of evangelicalism. <laughs> right, right. And um, I came out of a very multi-ethnic community of evangelicals. And so just about no one 
in my kind of close friendship circle was a Trump supporter. And so it, it, it baffled me that so many people so many evangelicals did mobilize around Trump. And I, I was blogging for the Huffington Post at the time. I wrote several blog posts just trying to parse through what, what is going on with all of this. And honestly, I would say I never really understood evangelical support for Donald Trump until I started studying the New Apostolic Reformation. It didn't, it didn't make any sense to me until I started piecing together how this matrix of independent charismatic, New Apostolic Reformation, the theology of all of that, backstopped Donald Trump and really gave gave moral license to evangelicals to support him. Yeah, I have to be honest, you know, I I I was only I'm only about 2 years removed from 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 a contemporary evangelical spaces. I was a drummer in those spaces for a lot of years and and did a lot of other work there and my church kind of gave me an ultimatum when I started this work actually to either you know, kick rocks or stop doing this work. So I I I was still pretty firmly seated in those spaces and me still being pretty conservative evangelical. I mean, I mean, I, I wasn't really affirming at the time or anything like that. I'm like, this is weird. Like, what is going on? And I almost felt like the people who quote unquote radicalized me to be this crazy Jesus follower. I I'm like, are you, are you, have you lost your mind? Like you're the ones who taught me about, about these sexual ethics that are just so important to have, you know, and, and, and if I don't have them, my life is going to be ruined. And you're telling me to vote for the guy on the cover of Playboy magazine, and you're mad at me because I'm giving you a hard time about that. So I think a lot of people, even ones who were inside those spaces, truly were like, "I, where is the logic, right? Like, where's the rhythm? And I, at the time, when that went down, I was part of like more CMA, that's Christian Missionary Alliance churches. Um, one church I was a part of was AG, but not really hyper-charismatic. So even then, even in those spaces when I saw that support, it wasn't necessarily what we're going to talk about, but it was still like, where is this coming from? You know, and, and I, I think that's important to kind of preface because a lot of people that I talk to in our spaces are still to this day kind of mystified by by the not just the 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 one-off, hey, we made a mistake in 2016, but the continual support of Trump and really what Trump represents, right? I mean, I think personally, side note, DeSantis is probably going to be the one who gets the nominee, but he's just a slicker version of Trump. I would argue even more far right in some ways. So we're definitely on this path. And that brings us to this term, new apostolic reformation. Before we we get, you know, big picture, can, can you give us some kind of working definition of what we're actually talking about? And then we'll kind of go forward. Yeah, if you go online, there are um, a lot of there's a lot of chatter about the New Apostolic Reformation. There's a lot of people who are very animated about it. Yeah, um, I uh, tend to disagree with a lot of the definitions that they are operatively working with. Um, so, but my definition of the New Apostolic Reformation is that it is a set of networks and an ideology developed by C. Peter Wagner um, in the late '90s and into the 20 the 2000s. Wagner retired in 2010. And so it's this network of people, fairly small network, actually, I would put it in the, in the hundreds, not in the thousands of people that aligned themselves with him and connected with him and um, especially adopted and absorbed a lot of this ideology that he was developing. Okay. And, and what, you know, I, I know that you use the term independent charismatic. It, it sounds like based on what you've said before, and I'll have you dig into it, this draws on more, I guess, charismatic theology. Can you kind of dive in, again, just big picture overview, what do they actually believe that would maybe separate them from like more typical common expressions of 
more Pentecostal type theology, et cetera. Yeah, let me give a little bit of history, right? Because um, I think that will help to to situate some of this. So. At the beginning of the 20th century, you have the rise of Pentecostalism, right? This exuberant form of Christianity that believes that there's a new filling of the Holy Spirit here at the, in the latter days, at the end of time. Once again, the charismatic gifts, the, these power gifts that we see and talked about in the book of Acts and in the epistles in the New Testament, those are back. And suddenly we're participating in those again. That energy of Pentecostalism ultimately winds up being uh, wrapped up in denominations. And so most Pentecostals today belong to a Pentecostal denomination. That energy spreads over in the 1950s and 1960s and starts to expand outside of Pentecostalism proper and moves into mainline Protestantism and into Catholicism. So you have today charismatic Episcopalians, charismatic Lutherans, charismatic Catholics. That was a movement that started around the middle of the 20th century. Once again, still within denominations, and the different denominations have found ways of accommodating these charismatic churches. Around that same time, there's a movement called the Latter Rain Movement that is really a rebellion within Pentecostalism, starts in the late 1940s in uh, Canada. And um, it is a um, a, a fairly radicalized theology. These folks believe that they really are living at the end of time and that they are frustrated with the denominational strictures and they get forced out of the Pentecostal denominations. And so they go out and kind of inhabit this independent charismatic world that is very small and very unformed at the time. By the 1960s, 1970s, that independent charismatic world starts to grow. As I mentioned, through the Jesus movement, through the, um, the, the growth of Messianic Judaism, through groups like the Vineyard and Calvary Chapel, you start to have a lot of energy, a lot of it centered in Southern California, of people who are excited about these charismatic gifts, but don't really want to attach themselves to denominations the way the Pentecostals or the mid-century charismatic movement folks did. And so that's really the world that we're talking about is this non-denominational, but very interested in kind of the filling of the Holy Spirit, very excited about that. And by today, there's, there's an entire ecosystem of this stuff. Part of it is what we call the word of faith movement, the prosperity gospel movement. Part of it is big mega churches that are independent from each other. Part of it is charismatic media that is really important. And then part of it is this uh, renewed interest in especially the offices of the apostle and the prophet that we find in the New Testament. Okay, yeah, that is really helpful. So it sounds like, and please feel free to correct me whenever I'm not being accurate because we want to be as truthful as we can and be rooted in data. Um, but it sounds like what you're telling me is that it started off as a pretty fringe movement, like maybe like like numerically, it wasn't the, you know maybe millions of people, maybe it was a few hundred, few thousand, and and like these independent churches that aren't really linked through a denomination, right? So there's no official network of like, hey, uh, just type in this church name, we'll tell you if they're in our network or not. But they're independent. But now all of a sudden, it seems like you know, fast forward to 2023, and and they are one of the biggest movements that led to. Things like January 6th. I mean, can you give us some big key events of that timeline? Yeah. So the um, by the time we're talking about in the 1990s when Peter Wagner is coining this term, New Apostolic Reformation, you've got a lot of people in this independent charismatic world, not a lot of organizing structure to it. Right. And part of what Wagner comes along and does through this idea of New Apostolic Reformation, which his basic idea, and he gets this idea from the latter reign movement, uh, but he's kind of putting his own branding and spin on it. The idea is Wagner's an expert in church growth. 
he thinks that uh, he, he he's taking, he's got a PhD in social ethics from the University of Southern California. So he's educated. So he's educated. Yeah. He's a seminary professor. He never really studied theology as such, but he's, he's studied kind of soci- sociology in some sense. And he's trying to blend those things together, trying to take the ideas of, of empirical data and apply it to theology and say, what are the forms of church growth that we can kind of engineer? Why do some churches grow and others don't? And how can we facilitate that either through mission movements overseas or through church movements in the U.S.? And he becomes convinced that the future of the church is going to be the leadership guided by the leadership of supernaturally endowed charismatic apostles and prophets. And that the, in the, at the kind of end of time here, there will be new modern day apostles and prophets, just like we see in the Bible. And that the apostles will build these massive networks of churches and ministries that will span the globe and they'll all cooperate together to bring about a great global revival. And the prophets will be hearing directly from God and informing and advising the apostles to bring this about. And that's what he sets about building is these networks and infrastructure to help house this idea that he has of the new apostolic reformation. And just in terms of just in terms of marking time, um, when Wagner starts out with this idea, it starts out fairly small. There's a few hundred people that attach themselves, charismatic pastors who want to try out this apostle thing in the early 2000s. Today, you have thousands of people in the U.S. who call themselves apostles, thousands of people in the U.S. who call themselves prophets. And those are the leaders over these grand networks. These are also a lot of the celebrities in charismatic media. And if we think worldwide, this apostolic prophetic model, they call it the five-fold ministry model because it's especially rooted in Ephesians chapter 4, which lists five gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, teachers, and pastors. But they're saying, well, we've got the other three. We've always had the other three, but now we're claiming back the apostles and prophets. And this stuff is growing gangbusters all over the world. Yeah. You know, I'm not sure if you know this, but I spent, I went to Turning Point USA's America Fest in December and I was there for the whole thing. And uh, sorry. people, <laughs> I actually got invited uh, by someone who was going and I, I had to say yes. I, mean, I had to go and experience this, you know, for a lot of my own personal reasons, plus the work that we do covers this stuff. And there were quite a few people. I mean, Flashpoint, I have their card right here. I got it while I was there. You know, Flashpoint was there and I saw all, I, I met Rob McCoy, shook his hand. I met Luke Barnett. Um, but I I'm also thinking about like um so let me ask you let, 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 let me give you some names of people and let me add, and then you tell me like if they're kind of in these spaces or not. Uh Paula White. So Paula White, Paula White Kane, she she yes. remarried and uh took a hyphenated last name. She is uh she at some point did start calling herself an apostle around 2012, but she doesn't really have any connection to Wagner. She actually is submitted to uh, a major apostle in Nigeria who she calls her spiritual father. So I would say she's in this apostolic and prophetic space. Yeah. That's a lot bigger than the new apostolic reformation. So she's friends with a lot of people that Wagner mentored. And she brought a lot of them in because Paula White Kane was uh, Trump's key religious advisor. She was, she was right. the, the right hand person for, for Donald Trump even had an office in the white house at the end of the Trump administration. But I would not put Paula White Kane in the NAR proper in the sense of people who are really deeply attached to Wagner, but she's definitely swimming in the same waters. How about Sean Foyt? As we explore in the in the series, uh, Sean Foyt grew up in the shadow 
of the New Apostolic Reformation. He was mentored by Che On. He's mentored by uh, Bill Johnson, who's Che On's best friend, who's the pastor uh, and apostle out at Bethel Reading. Um, and Sean Foyt really grew up in these circles. Now, I mean, you could have a technical disagreement over whether he's in the NAR in terms, I don't know if he ever met Peter Wagner, right. but he's been shaped and formed in the the shadow of that, in the, under the ideas, under the umbrella, under the even the vocabulary that he uses is very much coming out of the New Apostolic Reformation. Well, I do feel like, you know, I first ran into Sean Foyt during a COVID lockdown. So that's actually, I actually credit Sean Foyt for birthing new evangelicals because I was watching his videos on my front porch during COVID. Again, very still in my conservative evangelical spaces. And I'm watching this dude do these, and I'm also a drummer in worship spaces, so I care a lot, a lot about worship music at the time. And I'm watching this guy do these maskless worship gatherings and calling masks tyranny. And I'm like, God, this makes no sense. Like, it's pretty logical that, okay, we have something happening that we don't have a cure for. Masking is going to help that. So whatever we got to do. And he's the one who gave me the idea of like, I was so frustrated where right? I said, we need a new evangelical movement. That's how I, I, I got the name. And, and I feel like someone like Sean, I've, when I was a drummer in worship spaces, like at my old church that was AG, Assemblies of God, which I would argue was not NAR at all. Um, however, you do hear a lot of the similar language. Now that I kind of know what I know of like, God bring revival, God bring healing, God is here. I mean, uh, Elevation Worship has a song where it pretty much says the atmosphere is changing because the spirit, the spirit of the Lord is here, right? Is that language that is kind of coming from this NAR ideology or are they all kind of ripping off of each other? I'm just trying to get like, where are these sources coming from? So sourcing on ideas in this world is very difficult, um, right? Because I mean, from the start, Pentecostalism and this charismatic world has been about revival. So that that language is very native to the the Pentecostal movement and the charismatic movement as a whole. Um, What I would say, though, is what the NAR has done is these people that were very close to Peter Wagner and Peter Wagner himself did a very good job of coining new ideas, coining new phrasings, inspiring a lot of people around those phrasings. That's what I call in the series prophetic memes. These ideas that um, they, they, they have kind of this aura of revelation to them. They're, they're often people who say that they're prophets who are bringing these new ideas, things like yeah. the third great awakening, right? Things like um, blowing shofars, right? Where, where, where did that come from, right? Well, right. a lot of that stuff emerges out of these new apostolic reformation paradigms and the leaders who are within these networks. And then it's carried by charismatic media. Now, charismatic media, things like Charisma News or God TV, that's yeah. also being watched by Pentecostals or by some of the denominational charismatic folks, the mainline and Catholic denominational charismatic folks. So it's not like those ideas are self-contained within this world. They travel like memes. And the, the Dynastic Reformation leaders are very good at bringing forward ideas that travel and transport well, that other people want to pick up. And I would say that Sean Foyt is very much in that line, right? With his let us worship and things. A lot of people have grabbed hold of these Sean Foyt ideas and practices, and they they want to spread those further. 
Okay, that's really helpful. Let me give you just three other names I thought about while you were talking. Um, how about Jeremiah Johnson? He's from the Ultra Global. Is he an, an NAR person? He's he's someone, audience, just so you have a brief background, he's someone who was one of these prophets that kind of predicted that Trump would get reelected. And then he actually said he was sorry for doing that, which I thought, you know, all right, I applaud you for for admitting you were wrong. But the more I've seen his stuff as you're talking, I'm like, you know, some of his some of that wording rings a bell. So Jeremiah Johnson's a fascinating figure. He actually, um, in if you go back, you can find the Charisma News article where he first put out the prophetic meme of Donald Trump as Cyrus. A lot of people will attach that idea to Lance Wallnow. We talk yeah. about Wallnow using that idea in our in our Charismatic Revival Fury series. But actually, the idea goes back to Jeremiah Johnson. And he, he put it out there, I think it was in July of 2015. So this was, I mean, maybe a month after Donald Trump um, announced that he was going to run in the 2016 uh, candidacy in, in, in the primary. And Jeremiah Johnson was one of the first of these prophets to really attach this kind of prophetic destiny idea onto Donald Trump. He was very loyal to Donald Trump. I would say that Jeremiah Johnson comes from the independent charismatic world. He probably is on the borders of the NAR. He definitely is friends with a lot of people in the NAR. In fact, um, he was so loyal to Trump throughout the Trump administration. At one point, we talk about Cheon, who is just absolutely top of the kind of pyramid in the NAR, one of the, the premier disciples of, of Peter Wagner. And in the 2020 election, as it was going on, Cheon was traveling through the swing states campaigning for Donald Trump, and he actually brought Jeremiah Johnson along with him. So Jeremiah Johnson was, was really at the heart of a lot of the stuff. Now, again, interestingly, he, um, after the um, debacle of January 6th, Jeremiah Johnson apologized yeah. and said that he had been wrong, um, and he got death threats for that. Um, he was seen as yes. disloyal to this um, kind of prophetic sensibility that had built around Trump, this consensus of the prophets around Trump in 2020. I, my, from what I've seen of him lately, he's trying to kind of repair some of that and trying to still forge his own celebrity and maintain it within that world. But that definitely, he definitely took a hit to his reputation there. Yeah, I follow him on Instagram and it seemed like he completely rebranded, essentially, like shut down that, that whatever he was doing. And now he has, I think it's called the Alter Global. So that's helpful. All right, uh, really quick, two more, and then we're going to keep moving on. I, I want to get into, into the theology behind this. Uh, Robin Bullock, do you know who, who he is? He's I someone, do know who Robin Bullock is. Just for our audience to know, we've actually we've actually done some response videos because he was famous for uh, circumcising money. That was his big thing that I saw. That I was like, okay, I guess we have to circumcise our money. So God blesses it. So that's how I found Robin. But I've watched some of his stuff, and it is, uh, you know, it's a lot of this prophecy type, right? Like a band plays behind him, and he just starts saying, "Thus says the Lord," and they, he just goes off. So is he part of this NAR world as well, or kind of adjacent to it? Robin Bullock was actually there on January 6th. Cool. I don't know if you were cool, aware cool, of that. Cool, 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 cool. He posted a picture <laughs> on Twitter. Um, so he he was there in the crowds. Somebody handed him a staff, which, <laughs> where, where did he get this? But he, he took that as a sign that he needed to do a Moses prophecy. And so he stood across the reflecting pool from the U.S. Capitol holding this staff up and saying, I am parting the, the Red Sea. Red Sea, in his mind, was the Republican Party that was divided over <laughs> Donald Trump. And <laughs> you can still find this on Twitter, I think. Um, so Robin Bullock, I would say, comes out of the independent charismatic world, 
he's definitely identifies as a prophet. I would not put him in the New Upstock Reformation. Okay. There's a lot of independent prophets out there. Clearly. Um, this, 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 this is where, I mean, there's a lot of people who will say anyone who calls himself an apostle or a prophet is NAR. I want to be a little more constrained because the, the um, New Upstock Reformation terminology has become controversial. And a lot of people don't want to be attached to that. And so I am trying to point out that this really was Peter Wagner's idea. This really was what he was setting about to build. And those people who attach themselves to him, I think the label can fairly attach to them. There's a lot of other prophets out there. And some of them piggyback off of the New Apostolic Reformation. And even the, the, the charismatic media that the New Apostolic Reformation helped to form has really been a platform that Robin Bullock has used. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't classify him as NAR per se. All right, last one, and I, I, I would be—I mean, I would love your thoughts on this person. I might even try and find a, a clip to insert here so people can hear this person prophesy. But Julie Green. Now, this is someone I've seen online many times. She, she, she works uh, or goes on tour with, with with Michael Flynn for his Great uh, Reawakening tour, and you know, I, I've heard her quote unquote prophesy, and it is like it's something to hear because it it is quite the word salad often, and also very confident. Um, and so, is this someone who would maybe be in that in that world, or again, another one of these so called independent prophets who kind of feed off of it? Yeah, I would, again, put her more in the independent prophet kind of world. Um, she, as far as I can tell where I've looked her up, seems to come out of more of a word of faith prosperity gospel background. Okay. Okay. And especially that Reawaken America tour. And we do uh, a whole episode kind of looking at the Reawaken America tour. And I, I argue that um, it is downstream of the NAR. It is uh, using a lot of the ideas and frameworks, especially spiritual warfare, that come out of the NAR. But the the people who are associated with more come out of that kind of word of faith prosperity gospel. And I, I I'm writing a book about the NAR and the Capitol riot. I think a very interesting book could be written just on the role the word of faith movement and this prosperity gospel movement has played both in the Capitol riot and in the the way that right wing politics has shifted. So the the NAR and prosperity gospel overlap at some points because it's that in, they're both in that amorphous independent charismatic space. But I, I don't know that I've found any connection between her and Wagner's people. Well, I'm 0 for 3, so I'll take the L and just move on here. Um, you know, I, I can see, by the way, Matt, as we're talking, like I can see why you did a six-part series because I'm like, man, there's so many threads to pull, and I'm even struggling like which ones are, are best for our audience. So again, audience, if you're listening, if you're into this, I, I cannot recommend the podcast series enough. And you all know who listen. I don't always recommend podcasts that often, but when I do, I really believe in them. And this six part, it's really worth it. Matt has, has done the homework. It's it's well laid out. So if you're interested in that, check it out. I want to get into the theology that justifies or even mandates that Trump is like their Goliath. And I mean that you know, quite in, in the literal sense of how we understood that story, right? Of like, this is our champion to go defeat our enemies, so to speak. Um, what, what can you tell us about, again, I know it's complicated, but some of the highlights of the theology that drives the motivation for this Trump, I'm going to use a, a strong term, I would say idolatry and this Trump worship. I mean, for crying out loud, you know this, Matt, they made a golden statue of Trump at CPAC, and like no one batted an eye. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Spring is basically a second holiday season. Mother's Day, Father's Day, weddings, the list goes on. And what better way to celebrate them than with Drizzly, the go-to app for alcohol delivery. Drizzly is the easiest way to shop local stores and compare prices on a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered to your door. 
Download the app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Must be 21 plus. Not available in all locations. So what are some of the theological points that drive this? Yeah, that golden statue was a little bit on the nose. Right? Um, Jeez. (laughs) So... uh, so let, let me let me highlight three that I think oh, great, contribute great. very directly. Uh, three new apostolic reformation ideas that um, are directly attached to the way that Donald Trump becomes enshrined within this kind of spirituality of evangelicals. Awesome. So the first goes back to um, the the mid two thousands, um, and it's an idea, a very important idea that comes out of the new apostolic reformation called the Seven Mountain Mandate. Mm. Um, this is attached to a guy named Lance Wallnow. Um, and Lance Wallnow is a Pentecostal background guy, tries his hand in business, decides to become a pastor, isn't doing so great at that, and then finds out about this idea of the seven spheres of society. This is a very old idea within Protestantism, the idea of dividing up society into spheres. But he attaches mountain imagery to this idea. He says that he has a kind of prophetic revelation that he hears through somebody else's near-death experience, and he attaches seven mountains. And so he says, we can divide up society into these seven different mountains, government, religion, education, uh, arts and entertainment, the media. And what the goal of Christians should be is to conquer the heights of the mountains, take over the high places in American culture, in all of these areas, education, media, business, and then you influence society from the top down. Now, this becomes very, very important. This idea spreads everywhere through the New Apostolic Reformation networks out into this broader apostolic prophetic movement, out into the independent charismatic world. You can find even mainstream evangelicals today talking about the seven mountains. But when Trump comes along, one of the key justifications for Trump is He's not one of us. He's not, he's not a person who belongs in the religion sphere. He's not a pastor. He's not a priest. He's not even an apostle or a prophet, but he can conquer the government mountain for us. And the government mountain is so important that, uh, and, and even Peter Wagner, in, when he endorses Trump, says, well, he's already conquered the business mountain and he's conquered the media mountain. Why not let him take a crack at the government mountain too? Because th- as long as the person at the top of the mountain is governing in our favor, they don't have to be morally righteous. They don't have to be a, a good, pious Christian, right? So it's it's an accepting of a form of authoritarianism through this kind of theological prophetic framework. So that's that's the first that I would highlight. Can I um, pause you for one second there? Yeah, I, yeah. Just, just an interesting story I think the audience and you should know about. I... Um, uh, I'm not going to say his names. I didn't get permission and it consents a big deal to me. But I spoke to um, one of the highest up pastors at Turning Point USA privately, uh, who's part of a lot of this stuff. And I I asked him, help me understand this justification of Trump. I, I don't see it as a Christian. You know, Jesus says, love your enemies. Trump says, essentially, just conquer your enemies, right? And Matt, I am not kidding you. He He walked through the seven mandates and explained how Trump fit every single one, including the business one. He literally said, "Yeah, Trump has conquered the business mandate or the the the, the business mountain, you know, or, or or the business fear." And then when it came to family, he's like, "Well, he wasn't perfect on that, but he stands for family values." I mean, he went down the list every single freaking one. I, my my jaw internally was like, "Wow, you're you're going through the seven mountain mandate theology." to justify why Trump is the person. So I just wanted to point that out, that that this stuff even happened to me a couple months ago while I'm talking to this person. 
And in the Lance Wallnau episode, we really show where, how that idea developed and then how Peter Wagner heard this idea that Lance Wallnau brought and just took it and just broadcast it all over the charismatic world. Yeah. And just kind of blew it up and turned it into this, this um, political theology that has become very dominant in certain spaces. Yeah. All right. That's number one. Got it. The second one I would say is this idea of Trump as Cyrus. And once again, this was a Lance Wall now. So Jeremiah Johnson was the first person, as far as I can tell, who used this image. And again, if you go back to the Hebrew Bible, right, Cyrus is the Persian emperor who conquers the Babylonian empire and the Jews are there in exile. And he's the one who sends the Jews back from exile to go and rebuild Jerusalem. And so the idea that Trump is a Cyrus is once again saying he doesn't have to be righteous. He doesn't even have to be good, right? But Cyrus was not a good dude. He was a very brutal pagan emperor, but he did something good in, at least if you re- believe the prophet Isaiah, under the guidance of God. And that leads to this kind of restoration of the Jewish people in Jerusalem in the promised land. And so the idea of Trump as Cyrus is he's really, can I, can I use oh, yeah. profanity? He's oh, really yeah. an asshole. But he's our asshole. God has anointed this asshole to go and bring us back from cultural exile. And so conservative Christians can look to him. And, and Cyrus, in the, in the Hebrew Bible, there's a lot of messianic language that gets attached to Cyrus. And so there's a lot of messianic imagery that, that comes along with this Cyrus attachment. And Lance Wallnow is the, the first person to really make the broadcast this in a big way. Um, and he is one of the first evangelical leaders to endorse Trump, very much working in tandem with Peter Wagner and Peter Wagner's own endorsement of Trump to really clear the way for evangelicals to find some space to say, Let, let's go with this guy. So those two ideas, I would say, especially in the 2016 campaign, are huge in terms of Donald Trump um, adding theology, adding a theological layer into endorsing Trump. The third idea I'd say is um, this idea of strategic spiritual warfare that comes out of the New Upstock Reformation. Peter Wagner was experimenting with these ideas in the 1990s. He was very much part of what was then called the prayer movement um, and organizing kind of massive networks of prayer, especially in charismatic churches, vineyard churches. Is that I mean, like I, IHOP? IHOP, is that part of that network? IHOP is um, a, an independent charismatic church that is very much playing with these apostolic and prophetic ideas as well. They get looped into some of the stuff Peter Wagner's doing. In fact, Mike Bickle uh, oh, yeah, and some of the stuff that, that uh, Peter Wagner's doing. But then Bickle kind of detaches himself and IHOP, IHOP goes back a long ways to what were called the Kansas City Prophets in the 1980s, this group of kind of charismatic prophets that very much inspired a lot of the New Apostolic Reformation people and were um, friends with Wagner and a lot of his acolytes. Um, So IHOP has some very deep roots in this stuff as well. Wagner um, believed, I mean, a lot of people talk about spiritual warfare, right? Right. And um, most people think of spiritual warfare as like, I'm going to cast out my personal demons or your personal demons, or we're going to pray and protect our house against evil spirits, that sort of thing. Um, The, What Wagner kind of innovated, and he wasn't the only person thinking about this. There were a lot of people that he was working with on this, but he innovated this idea that there are geographical regions that are controlled by what he called territorial spirits. And he used that language from the book of Ephesians about powers and principalities to talk about these territorial spirits. Can I ask a question? I'm sorry to interrupt (laughs) you, Matt. Forgive me for interrupting. It sounds like, in a way, he's almost. Is he talking about like like divine council stuff? Like this? Is that what he's drawing on, or is it is it is it, 
kind of coincidental that that he's he's, he's using that language. Uh, it's it's similar language, yeah. the The okay. idea is that there's um, in, in in Wagner's theology, yeah, there are these deep and entrenched spirits, and it's very much tied up with his ideas of dominion. So if you go back, he's very much a proponent of dominion theology. This is something he really attaches to the Seven Mountains. But the idea is right: God gives dominion to the man and the woman in Genesis chapter one, and they're supposed to kind of rule over the earth, subdue it, cultivate the earth. In Wagner's theology, and this this is deep roots in reformed reconstructionism and yes. the, the, the ways that that kind of uh, percolates out into the charismatic world. But the idea is when you have the fall in Genesis chapter three, right? Adam and Eve fall, they, they eat the, the fruit, they lose their dominion. Satan takes away their dominion. Now this is... <laughs> If you survey Christian theology, this is a very idiosyncratic interpretation of theology, but it's very popular in this Reformed Reconstructionist world and then into this independent charismatic world. And Wagner then says what Satan does is he parcels out the earth to these territorial spirits, these high-level commander demons who then take control over regions and attach themselves to people. And they, they, the NAR will go very deep on some of this stuff, looking back at kind of ancient religions and ancient religious practices and saying, oh, see, that's how the territorial spirits were controlling them, and we need to break the power of those territorial spirits. And then Wagner thought you could use spiritual warfare, especially if you have people like apostles and prophets who carry this supreme authority in spiritual warfare, to figure out who those territorial spirits are and to cast them out, to do battle with them at a very high level using apostolic and prophetic authority and insight in order to conquer territory, to expand spiritual territory. This is the language, again, that you find Sean Foyt using, right? Totally. This this (laughs) idea (laughs) of of weapons and warfare, this language of violence, this rhetoric of violence. And so when Trump becomes president, um, Lance Wallnow at the very start is talking about this is a spiritual warfare presidency. And these, these ideas of spiritual warfare, strategic spiritual warfare, have been seeded throughout the independent charismatic world. And so there's a group of um, apostles and prophets that organize what's called POTUS Shield, right? POTUS, President of the United States. And this, they, they create these networks, these prayer networks of apostles and prophets who will come to D.C. and do strategic spiritual warfare in D.C. on behalf of Donald Trump and broadcast these. I mean, this is all charismatic media is covering this and watching as these apostles and prophets are doing this. And this is all in alignment with Trump's evangelical advisors. Uh, Paula White Kane gets looped into some of this stuff at different points. And so you have this kind of synchronicity between the ideas of spiritual warfare and the agenda of the Trump presidency. And so every time that this group said that, well, from their perspective, Trump is the prophesied president, the anointed president that God has put here in place. And when his policies are unpopular, when his ideas are unpopular, well, it's because the resistance we're feeling must be because the territorial spirits and the demons are pushing back against us and we need to do strategic spiritual warfare. So it becomes this kind of self-fulfilling Manichaean worldview. Anytime that people are resisting Trump, anytime people are resisting our agenda, it must be because the demons are there. And by the time you get to January 6th, a lot of the people who are showing up that day, a lot of the organization that day was a strategic spiritual warfare campaign on behalf of Donald Trump, because they didn't just think that the Democrats were stealing the election from them. They thought the demons were stealing the election. The Democrats. Yes. <laughs> they, they, they love that. that <laughs> As April Joyce says. Um, okay. Wow. 
Oh, again, I mean, I want to pull so many threads, but we got to keep focused for sake of time. You know, um, this is really helpful, I think, for for people to get just some kind of visual. Like, okay, I'm seeing connections being made. I mean, one example I'm thinking about is I'm sure you've seen that vi- viral video of I, I think it was Che Young. Is, is that his name? Che On. Che On. Uh, when he was at Bethel, and they 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 pounded the staff and they declared racism ending. Is that like an example of this idea of like spiritual warfare, where where in their minds there's some demonic force in some part of the world, America, that is racist, and so if they pound the staff and say the words, that's going to somehow in the spirit realm solve it. Is that the idea we're drawing on here? Yeah, absolutely. And um, wow. the wow. idea of so even even from the NAR perspective, racism itself is a manifestation of these ancient ties to the territorial spirits. And so we they they want to break the power of racism so that the church can expand and take over society. In right. fact, um, in the twenty, so in in the uh, in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder. Cheon's church, which Cheon is a uh, Korean American. He came uh, as an immigrant from Korea as a child. And he leads a very multi-ethnic church in Pasadena, California. Um, and he has this global apostolic network, 25,000 plus ministries that all look to Cheon wow. as their apostle. And so after George Floyd's murder, a lot of evangelicals are kind of reacting against this and saying, oh, Black Lives Matter, we don't want that. Right. Cheon does not react against that. He holds prayer meetings in his church kind of about racism and about race. Now here's the pivot though. Yeah. They believe that the real territorial spirit that is destructive in America is the spirit over abortion. And so Cheon actually creates a new movement in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder called one race for life. Number one race, number four life. And the idea is all the races can come together and we can um, have conversations about racism, but the real need is to fight against abortion. And if we can all band together, maybe as a secondary consequence, we can also overcome racism. So they tend to rank these things and say, here's what's really important. Abortion's really important. Or taking out the Freemasons, which they believe is very much a demonic cabal, um, is, is what's really important. And yeah, racism's bad. And let's pray against racism, but then let's go over here and really mobilize against these other things. Um, so there is that, that, but that theology of apostles and prophets can declare and decree racism is over and pound a staff um, at, on stage. That, that's very much is coming out of this idea of they, these people wield this great authority. And they think if they can just set things upright, then they can create cultural breakthrough through these prophetic acts. Let me ask you a question, just your personal opinion, okay? And you know, our our audience knows we we really have a a a um a strong value of not dehumanizing people, even people that we strongly disagree with. I mean, I, I think dehumanization is what is it puts us on the path to violence, frankly. And I I don't want to belittle um for some people very real experiences of them encountering God in, in miraculous and prophetic ways. Um, but I, I will admit, I, I struggle with taking some of this stuff seriously in that sense. Obviously, I take it seriously as far as its impact and what it can do. We, we saw that and we're still seeing that. But this idea of like, you know, pounding a, a, a staff on a stage reminds me of Michael Scott declaring bankruptcy. You know, it's that kind of idea for me. Do you think this is just your opinion? I'm not asking for, for hard data. Do you think that, that this world, is is incredibly sincere in what it believes, or do you think it just has found a good tool 
that helps them maintain power and control in influential spheres to enact what they might think is either God or what they just want to happen in America? Like, what's your just your personal opinion on this? I've interviewed a number number of leaders in this world. Yeah, um, I have paid close attention to how they act and what they do. I'm a religious studies scholar, so um, I I tend to not want to discount what people say their beliefs are, what people say their um, theology is. And from everything that I've seen, these people really, really believe this stuff. Now, that's not to say there aren't hucksters out there, that there aren't people playing this. And, and there definitely are profit motives that become wrapped up in this, right? But everyone's the hero of their own narrative. Yeah. And for these apostles and prophets, they, they believe that they have been endowed with this commissioning and this great authority that they are, need to go out and help conquer the world for the kingdom of God. And they think that these acts that they're doing are very important. I can't explain a lot of their presence, right? Cindy Jacobs, who's one of the other real leaders and prophets in this world, she shows up on January 6th to do strategic spiritual warfare over the Capitol. And it's not this super public thing. I mean, she posts a couple of videos on Facebook, but most people don't know that she's there. Mm. But she so fully believes that through her prophetic authority, she can turn the tide that day. She can affect things that she makes the trip to D.C. and goes to and is on a stage just off the site of the Capitol uh, with a mic and a speaker trying to pray these strategic prayers over the Capitol. Right. That's the behavior of some people who really believe these things, who are really immersed in that. And I think it, it, it feels strange to us as outsiders, but I think we have to understand these people as sincere if we actually want to understand what they're doing and the way that they're operating. If you just assume people are hucksters, if you just assume yeah. that this is all a grift, then you you won't be able to track the way that they actually operate in the way that they think. I have to agree with you. I mean, listen, I, I, I was not part of the NAR, but I was definitely in spaces that were big on trying to prophesy and believing for miracles. And I, I gave it my all, you know, truly, you know, I tr- spoke in tongues, whatever I, I wanted to believe. Right. And, and, and I was one of those people at one point where I just genuinely wanted to believe that God in this miraculous way can break through. And frankly, you know, there's mystery in my own life that sometimes I go, maybe that was God. I don't know. And, and I think it's important that you said that because, I do think that 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 people write these folks off as delusional or crazy, and I think all that does is a. I, I think it further entrenches them right into that self fulfilling prophecy of oh look opposition we're doing something right, and also it doesn't take it the movement seriously enough and how ultimately and I'm not asking you to comment on this if you don't want to but I'll say it how it impacts democracy in America. You know one thing that I've said often is that Christian nationalism really from both streams, the RJ Rush Duny Dominionist side and this side, they do not believe in in in, in the plurality of religions. They don't believe in in, in 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 a democracy that's represented by the people who occupy it. They have no problem with, with with minority rule as long as it's them ruling. You know, so it's not about even numbers. It's about the power and control that they can have because in their minds, God has given them this divine mandate to rule over America. And depending on who you ask, usually to usher in the end times or the end of the world. So God's kingdom is here, right? So I, I I think we have to take this stuff seriously. And I don't think enough people do because they see the prophecy stuff and they, maybe they haven't grown up with it or it just seems bizarre to them. And so they think it's just it's just some it's just a bunch of kooks. But the reality is many of these people are very genuine and really believe that God has given them this mandate. And that 
that should give us pause for concern regarding how that fleshes out in civic life. And let me make a little bit of a distinction that I have found helpful in terms of thinking about this stuff. If you look at some of the survey data, either Andrew Whitehead and Sam Perry's sure. taking America back for God or some of the recent Pew data, you can find these Christian nationalist sentiments suffused throughout the American population. 45, maybe even sometimes 50% of Americans saying things like America is a Christian nation or America should be a Christian nation. When I look at that, I, I, I would say, yeah, that's Christian nationalism in a certain sense, but it's kind of a mushy vague sentimental idea. And when you drill down with those folks and, and you can see this in the survey data, go and look at the stuff that Pew did. I think it came out in October or November when you really drill down. Okay. So you think that the federal government should declare the U S a Christian nation. It's a fraction of those, that group that is willing to say, yes, the U S government should declare this. You think the, the Supreme court should use Christian theology to make governing decisions. It's a fraction. It's maybe 10, maybe 15% on the outside of the American population that really wants to say, yes, we need to take over the country for, for Christ. I think what you see both in the reformed reconstructionist, RJ Rush Dooney, Gary North world, and in the new apostolic reformation is what I would call a, a form of Christian supremacy. Mm. They, the, this is, this is not mushy, sentimental. Uh, we just kind of like the idea of God bless America. This is an organized theology that says Christians are better than other people by dint of being Christians. And Christians should rule over and take over society, at least on the NAR side, because God has mandated that they do so. God has commissioned them to, and this is the phrase that they'll use from Jesus's great commission, disciple nations. Yeah. And so apostles need to disciple the nation of the United States. And so in their mind, that taking over things like even the mobilization for January 6th is all coming out of their theology. It's not some kind of sentimental attachment to some bygone era of America. Yeah, I think if, if we can highlight to people who hold these kind of vague sentiments about Christian nationalism, this is what we're talking about. Right, This Christian supremacy, what we see in the NAR, that's the program. That's the agenda that some people, some Christians are trying to pull people towards. I wonder if we can maybe drive a wedge and say, hey, look, I understand you like kind of God bless America, but are you really on board for this? Are you really on board for apostles and prophets taking over the United States of America, for apostles and prophets becoming the ones who are feeding ideas to the president of the United States and who are mobilizing forces on behalf of an authoritarian president? Do you really want that? I don't think we can have a pluralistic democracy and have 45% of the country not on board with pluralism. That's just not how pluralism works, right? Right. But if we can find help convince some of these folks Hey, I understand some of your sentiments about America and Christianity. Are you really on board with this? Yeah. Hold up the mirror, show them the reality. Is this really what you're looking for? I think some of the people might might 
section off. I go back and forth between that. I, I, I you know, when, when I talk to Brad, he, he's like, Christian nationalism is you want America to be a Christian, you're a Christian nationalist. So I'm like, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, I think just being blunt with you and honest with you, I, I think I tend to be more in Brad's camp on this. But in the reason why, I'll tell you why. I understand what you and you know Samuel Perry and Andrew White. I, I talked to both of those guys; they're amazing. I've had Samuel on the podcast many times, and that work is so important. We, and we have to be specific about this stuff. But you don't get you know the Supreme Court that we have without this network of like the so-called moderate. Right. The person who's like, well, yeah, maybe, maybe Charlie Kirk's a little too extreme for me, but you know, family values and he's pro-life. So I I can stomach it. And I just think there are a lot of people in the pews who I don't blame them as much. I blame the leaders for 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 their and I would call it indoctrination of what they do, but also there is some complicity in 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 these, yeah, maybe America's Christian nation. They they at least at a minimum, in my view allow this stuff to go on rampantly in their spaces. You, I don't think you get QAnon as big as it is without the white evangelical church just letting it become a conduit. I don't think you get the election fraud narrative as much as you do with, 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 um, without pastors and people just saying, well, you know, maybe I, I, I can't be sure. So I tend to think without that like foundation of those kinds of people, I don't know if you get – Turning Point USA doing $55 million in donations last year. I just don't know if you get there. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think um, I'm not, I'm right. The the problem with <laughs> yeah. the relationship between Christian supremacy and Christian nationalism yeah. is that many Christians look at Doug Mastriano, who was mentored by New Upstock Reformation leaders, or look at uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, look at some of the things that are going on in the Republican Party, and they're like, it's not a threat to me. Yeah. And so they're willing to vote for it because they see it as connected to their broader interests. I think part of the, the goal is to find what are the vulnerabilities in that coalitional thinking and say, here, let, let's think about your Jewish friends. Let's think about right. your Muslim friends. Let's think right. about your Muslim neighbors. Let's think about your atheist neighbors, your people, your friends who don't identify with religion at all. Right, help them to see outside of the blinders of their own Christian conservative interests, and say, "This this threatens the very project of pluralism. This threatens the very project of being a cohesive, diverse country." Yeah, and and really, if I I, I hope, <laughs> I, mean, yeah. I, I I understand the, the the feeling of despair, but I hope that we can be able to humanize both sides on this argument enough to say like, okay, let's meet in, in our humanity and let's find ways to protect that humanity. No, I, I definitely agree um, where I, I hope that, like you said, what I'm, well, at least what I'm hearing you say is, is like, maybe we can drive a wedge between these, uh, what, what does Sam call them? Ambassadors and accommodators, right? Yeah. So the people who are Charlie Kirk, who go to Turning Point USA uh, um, versus like, you know, um, Susie in the pews who maybe, yeah, this sounds good. If you can maybe in theory educate and, and have a relationship with Susie that can, can, that could persuade her right to why this is so dangerous and why it doesn't protect her friends in her neighborhood. That might be a way to maybe drive a wedge between this. Is, is that kind of what you're hinting at? Yeah. And I tried to write and develop this charismatic revival fury profile of the new apostolic reformation in such a way that, People who are not Christians 
can listen to it and really come to understand some of this underlying theology. But I also tried to write it in such a way that an evangelical, who maybe even is a conservative evangelical, could listen to it and not feel per- attacked per se, yeah. but understand what does Christian extremism and Christian radicalism look like in yeah. America today? Where What are the forces that are driving that? Where is it coming from? And maybe think differently about it. I, I a thousand percent agree. In fact, we're working at, uh, as an organization to develop more educational content that's aimed at people like that, that is not, you know, harsh or like, how could you believe this? Because you're right. I mean, I mean, there is a proverb, right? A soft answer turns away wrath. I, I think there's some some wisdom in that idea. And I honestly do think, like just my perspective, I think you did that really well in your series where I could say that to a friend who maybe you know, is a worship leader at a church and doesn't really think about this stuff. And they wouldn't feel attacked, but hopefully feel like, like, like they've learned something that would keep them or maybe help out their awareness of like, oh, when I hear this, actually, maybe I should be concerned when when someone on my team says something like this, you know, like what, what's the drawing from? So I, I totally agree there. I think that's really important. Last question for you. And Matt, I, I just want to, again, sincerely thank you for your time and for and for kind of spelling out so much of this friends again the podcast series is on the white uh, straight white american jesus podcast it's a six part series you can find it all there it's well worth the listen and this is maybe more speculative so i fully acknowledge that but i do think so you have this rush duny rj rush duny perspective of christian nationalism you have the nar movement I think it's only a matter of time, and I would argue it's starting to happen, where they essentially fight each other over who's the true in uh, hair, uh, hair, heir of, uh, of, 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 of America. In fact, I read an article, I think it was Religion Dispatch, that said in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, close to me, uh, there are groups of people who are Christian nationalists, pretty steeped in that more reformed R.J. Rush Juni type of, you know, Doug Wilson type rhetoric, who are pretty much saying like, hey, the NAR, it's a bunch of heretics. These prophets are are complete heretics and you shouldn't trust them. So I think we're going to see that rift. But what are your thoughts on that? If you go back into the 1980s, uh, 1990s, you see Rush Dooney and Gary Gary North, his son-in-law, who are really the kind of movers and shakers in that reformed reconstructionist, very kind of hyper-Calvinist form of what we could call Christian nationalism. They're very much into dominion theology and kind of taking over um, whole societies using biblical law, they, they recognized that their project was an elite project. They recognized that they were not going to be um, become public leaders mm. in any real way. And Gary North even talked about, um, as so what they did was they started going to some of these independent charismatic conferences, presenting their ideas and trying to blend these things in. And they recognize these people are not going to be on a board with all the Calvinist theology that we have, but maybe they'll adopt some of these ideas. And Gary North even used the image, we can be, we, the reformed reconstructionists can be the light and the charismatics can be the heat. And they, they, they saw the demographic power and the populism of this charismatic world and thought that that, that could really be the marching troops of some of this agenda that they had. And they were actually very right, right? These ideas became incredibly popular through these charismatic circles. Um, But they've also become more and more detached from that reformed theology. Yeah. And so the reformed theology, the people like Stephen Wolf writing these books on Christian nationalism that um, is, is trying to kind of present an intellectual case. It's operating in coalition with these independent charismatic folks, but 
frankly, most of them are not reading any of that. They don't care about that. It's not their theological universe. Right. I think the, the problem with the Reformed Reconstructionists is they still remain very elite. It's, it, they're small circles of people who even care about Reconstructionist ideas. Yeah. There are masses of people who come to charismatic megachurches, who uh, attend Bethel uh, events, who want yeah. to go to Hillsong, who want, right, who, who want the experience. It's, it's this kind of energetic form of Christianity filled with supernatural revelation, and it is growing. Most forms of Christianity in America are not growing. Yep. Charismatic circles are growing. And so I think if, it's good, if, if, if the Reformed Reconstructionists want to pick that fight, I don't think they're going to win it because the, these kind of NAR and independent charismatic right-wing mobilization forces are incredibly powerful today. And they have moved into the center of the right-wing politics of our country. And they aren't going to leave that center anytime soon. The NAR also seems, well, that, that I should say that world, like the charismatic world in general, NAR included, um, they seem way more um, open to adopting more modern technology, modern worship. I mean, you know, you go to an elevation worship concert, you know, in, I'm not saying that, 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 that they are NAR necessarily, but like, you know, some of that language that they might be hearing it from, but it's, it's dressed up really nice, right? Stephen Wolf, who's the author of that book, A Case for Christian Nationalism, is on podcasts advocating for blasphemy laws. I mean, I have a clip of him doing that, right? So, so I... I don't think, you know, when you're that blunt and direct about, yeah, you know, women shouldn't be able to lead because they're too empathetic and we should crush atheism. That's not really a winning strategy. But when you are a little more sleek about some of these ideas and it's wrapped up in this, you know, you can hear from God, God will lead you, worship hard, give your life to Christ. And it's dressed up in like a modern package of, of, of Americana technology and empire, uh, that's a much more attractive position. And you don't really know what you're swimming in until maybe it's almost too late. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I'll just say, wait until the 2024 election. I don't these want folks to, who, Don't tell who, me that. <laughs> these folks who look like they're bickering and fighting now on the margins in Lancaster County, yeah, they'll all be on board. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They, 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 they know how to circle the wagons. They know how to mobilize. They know how to organize. And that playbook has been run many times before. So I, I, I reading the tea leaves and trying to find all the cracks in the, the, the coalition is fine, but they, they know what they're doing. Yeah, fair enough. Matt, again, I, I can't thank you enough for your time. Where can folks find you? I mean, are, are, are you on Twitter, Instagram? Where can they follow your work? It, it's so well done, and we appreciate you making time to be here. I'm on Twitter at Taylor Matthew D. And you can also follow the work that we do at the Institute for Islamic Christian and Jewish Studies in Baltimore. That is www.icjs.org. We run a lot of public programs that are open to the public and are on Zoom. So you can join from wherever you are and they're free. So we, we're a nonprofit and we try to offer all of our programs for free to the public. And you can even find a lot of our resources on YouTube as well. And you said you're in Baltimore? You're two hours away from me? That's right. Oh my good! And our our buddy Josh Patterson, he's a brewer in Baltimore, makes amazing beer. So I I I might be in touch about maybe something in person shortly. So we'll we'll try and make that happen. Matt, again, thank you for your time, friends. I know I said it a lot. I'll say it again. Check out the full series, Straight White American Jesus podcast. Well worth your time. It is so helpful and and, and um just informative of of the waters that a lot of us are swimming in. We'll talk to you all next time. 